Welcome to the Modern Girl Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Parsons. I'm a certified holistic health coach, intuitive eating specialist, and health at every size advocate. Cozy up with me each week for empowering conversations with ambitious women as we share real stories around our relationships with food, body, and moving through life in the modern world. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the show. I hope you're well, and I am so glad that you're with us today because I have an incredible guest and I have been on pins and needles waiting to release this conversation because it's so good. I swear... When I was talking to Nancy, um, my guest today, who I will I will introduce in just a moment, but when Nancy and I were having this conversation, I personally was having so many light bulb moments. And when I was talking with Shayla, who is our incredible podcast manager, amongst many other things, she wears a lot of hats in in our business. Um, she said, Caitlin, I had to keep going back in the conversation. I had to keep rewinding because there were so many things that I, I just couldn't believe. And I had to take notes and, and really just hear it again, because it was really information I was learning for the first time. And I felt the same way too. I read Nancy's book, The Happier Approach, um, a few months ago, earlier this year. And I had actually heard her on another podcast speaking about high functioning anxiety and truthfully it it really was one of those moments for me where i not only felt really seen and heard but i felt like i had a new strategy for how i support my own anxiety and and mindset and if you are somebody who struggles with black or white thinking that all or nothing thought cycle if that's something that's relevant for you, just hang on because Nancy's approach is really, really powerful for supporting a new way to get out of that. And she gives a lot of context to how this is not only relevant for your everyday life, but also your relationship with your body and food as well too. I've used this book and this approach so much in my own life, as well as with my clients. It's really been uh, probably one of the best parts of this year. And I I really, um, I know that's a grandiose statement, but it's absolutely true. I'm really grateful for Nancy. So let me tell you a little bit about this fabulous human being before we jump into the conversation. Nancy Jane Smith specializes in high-functioning anxiety with 14 years in private practice and over 20 years working in the field. Nancy has a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Miami University and earned two master's degrees in higher education and in community counseling from the University of Dayton. Nancy also completed her postgraduate training in Gestalt therapy at the Gestalt Institute of Central Ohio and is a certified Daring Way facilitator based on the research of Dr. Brene Brown. 
She has written three books on living happier, most notably The Happier Approach, Be Kind to Yourself, Feel Happier, and Still Accomplish Your Goals. We talk about so much in this conversation. Not only does Nancy, of course, generously and courageously share her own personal body image story as everybody does on the show. But we also talk about common anxiety, coping mechanisms, healing high functioning anxiety, what high high functioning anxiety is. She really breaks it down in a comprehensive way. I know I certainly had an idea of what this was before I really learned about it from her. Um, And practical tools and strategies for your own healing journey and really uh, building in some, some solid coping systems for healing your relationship with your mindset, your body, food through this fabulous approach that Nancy is, is teaching us about today. So we will be sure to link everything in the show notes, all of the ways that you can connect with Nancy, all of the ways that you can get in touch with us in this community and everything that we have going on. We have some amazing workshops coming up. Um, If you're not on the email list, be sure to get on that. We send an email out every single week with a little wrap up of all the things that we have going on, as well as really Uh, practical support for healing your relationship with food and your body image. So be sure to sign up for that and get plugged in if you're not already. And I think that's it. I think I feel like I had one more thing that I wanted to tell you, but I can't think of it. So we're just going to jump in. And without further ado, here is my conversation with Nancy Jane Smith. All right. Nancy Jane Smith. Hi. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. And thank you so much for being here today. I absolutely love your book. And I just feel really grateful that you're taking the time to be with us and can't wait to get to know you as a person and your expertise even more. Ah, thanks. I'm super excited for this conversation. So awesome. Well, let's start with the first question that we ask everybody on the show. And that's your first body awareness moment. So can you just share what that moment looked like for you, that moment where you realized I'm in a body and this means something in the world that I'm living in? What did that look like? How did that shape your relationship with your body and or food from there? Well, I don't have, and I've been racking my brain to come up with it, um, a specific moment and, um, and we were talking before the show and you were saying like, yes, sometimes that moment gets buried, which I totally can own that that moment has probably been buried for me. Um, but I do remember, you know, I ran cross country in high school and I didn't have, I, I ran cross country cause my brother ran cross country and it was a good thing to do in my brain. And, um, but there wasn't any food issues related to it. It was just kind of like, here's a body. I need to push it to perform as best as possible. I ended up getting an injury that uh, removed me from from running. And and then somehow there was a transition from that period where it was very much my body was, I was neutral about it. Like it was something that moved me through the world and it was something that I would perform in athletics with, but that was about it. And then I got into college and I went to a, um, it was a public school, but it it was very, body aware, I would say, especially for the, for the women. And I grew up that when I was in college was, 
the time when the, the common wisdom of weight loss, quote unquote, was to eat as you could eat as many carbs and as much sugar as you wanted. And which is so counter to what we know now, but that was the message then. So I can remember working out like a mad woman and then coming home to my apartment in college and like eating Rice Krispie treats and eating um, bagels as much as we wanted, because that was our belief that it was as much as we wanted. And so at that point, and was when I now looking back, would have diagnosed myself with an eating disorder because I was so, I just worked out excessively to counter what I was eating and everything was about um, control and elimination and how can I um, get myself to be as small as possible. And it, I was, so in that moment, in those four years, and then continuing into most of my adult life, I have been very body aware of what I looked like and how I felt in my body. Mm. So how did that change moving forward? What was there a period where you acknowledged something has to change and that this, this is actually not serving me the relationship that you had with food in your body at that time? I mean, I don't, I went through periods until my forties. So I'm currently 48 right now. And I would say until my forties was when I finally, and I wouldn't say made peace with food, but and making peace with food. I should say I quit warring against it. And so from that time, so from the time I was 18 until the time I was probably 40, maybe a little bit later, I was like doing Weight Watchers and then I was eating whatever I wanted. And then I was back to restricting and I did this cycle up and down, up and down and had a lot of rules about a good person eats like this and a good person weighs this much. And so much of my life was on that track of controlling everything I felt was through food and how I looked. And I grew up with my dad who was very restrictive when it came to food. He was very obsessed with food and eating and would say to people like, Oh, you, <laughs> Oh, you've put on weight. Mm. You need to lose some weight. It's not good for you to weigh this much. Like he would say that to women. Like it just makes me aghast now when I think about it, but um and, and was very open with me about that. So when I, so now I weigh more than he, you know, he, he died a couple of years ago and, um, and I weigh more now. I don't think I weigh more now than when he died, but he was not happy quote unquote with, with how I looked. He wanted me to be thinner and healthier in his mind. And so that's what took me a long time was unhooking the, the belief of skinny is healthy. Mm. And so back to the idea of, you know, when I was in college and I can eat as much sugar and carbs as I want, as long as I weigh a certain amount is just wackadoodle when you think about it. Whereas now I'm much, you know, I, I weigh more than I've ever weighed, but health wise, well, I mean, like what I eat and put in my body, I'm so much healthier than I've ever been. Mm. Yeah. It, I mean, just what you're describing, this internalized fat phobia is just, it's so, it's so rampant in our culture. And, you know, I, I don't think that there's many people who are immune to that, whether, you know, somebody in your own family or friends, or certainly the media. I mean, your story is so powerful because it is such a, um, it, it's such a specific, specific example of, 
internalizing these messages and really living from this place of fear, it sounds like, and controlling your body and your food choices from this fear-based perspective more than this joy-based or just neutral uh, neutrality that it, it sounds like you're you're more accustomed to now, would you say? Yeah, I would totally agree. Because I think the shame, it finally got better, I guess, for lack of a better phrase, when I, because the shame was always attached to the rule in my brain, which was a good person. It could eat whatever they want and not gain weight. Mm. So I, so I want to be the person that can go out and eat the crappy food and, and be super thin. And that's not, those two things don't go together for me. Like I can't be a person that goes out and eats whatever they want, mostly because it doesn't make me feel good. But for most of my twenties and thirties, I kept trying to find that sweet spot between where am I going to be the person who is, who isn't the girl who's always on a diet or the girl who's always monitoring what, you know, what she eats and the fun loving, I could go and eat ribs and whatever with anybody and also be the person that that's a certain size. Mm -hmm. And that it never could reconcile for me. And so instead of recognizing that belief is bullshit, I rec I just shamed myself all over the place that I didn't have the body that could do that. And there was something wrong with me that I didn't have that body. Mm. And this is simultaneous to the work that you're doing at the time as, as well too. Is that right? You're, you're a therapist. So this, your relationship with food and your body during this part of your adult life was while you were practicing as well too. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Okay. This is, this has been an ongoing, um, kind of an underlying current of everything of all my work is, is very much attached to food is the way, cause I work with anxiety mm -hmm. and have always been dealing with my own anxiety and helping clients with anxiety and, and food is the way I express my, is like a, my go-to coping skill with anxiety. Mm -hmm. Ooh, that's so interesting. And I have, uh, I have so many thoughts and questions around this, but my first question is how did you manage this in your professional and personal life? This, um, this, this feeling of helping others who are possibly struggling with the same or similar things that you were struggling with in terms of food and anxiety? Yeah, that's a great, <laughs> it's a great question. And it, you know, it, it brings, you know, it really is that idea of, um, as I was, it wasn't until in the past couple of years, have, it, have I been way more honest? And actually there was an episode on my podcast where Erica Drury, who I think was on your podcast. Yes. Uh, yes. She's a friend of mine. And I interviewed her for my podcast and oh, I, 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 love laid, her. I love her too. And I laid myself bare <laughs> to her on my own podcast, like mm. sharing, you know, all the, all the ways that I kept this hidden. And so I acted like I had it all together with clients. I acted like this wasn't a struggle of mine. I didn't like, not in a pompous way, but like, it just, I, I never brought it up. It, it wasn't something that I brought to light. It was always the secret struggle that I was having that I wasn't really relating to my work. Mm. Like, and I see that now I'm actually going through my, I'm re 
doing my website right now. And so I'm going through a lot of old blogs and I can see now where I do that. And I talk about, here's what, you know, here's what you should do if you are someone who's being authentic and genuine and, and honest and dealing, and I'll even talk about it and dealing with your food issues. And then it would be like, but I didn't say this out loud, but in my mind, I'm like, but I'm not doing that. I'm secretly, you know, using food as a reward and drinking excessively was another thing I did a lot. And you know, binging all the time and then restricting all the time. And I wasn't really, there was this inauthenticity with how I was approaching my work versus what my life was really like. How did that impact your, the work that you were able to do? Do you feel like that, that helped you? Like that was more of a protective mechanism or in hindsight, do you feel like that was hindering you from, from the work that you were able to do? You know, I probably, when you first said just now, when you first asked the question, I'm like, oh, it was terrible that I did that. It was terrible that I did that. Like that just totally hindered my work. But then when you said, was it protecting me? And it was like, I don't, I couldn't, I hadn't done my own work in this area and really faced some, a lot of my own demons. And so I, I couldn't bring that up. You know, it wasn't at, a, I think that was for the best for me and my clients, because it wasn't at a healed place for me to be talking about it and being able to be open about it. And now I can say like, ah, oh, I just went, in, you know, last week I, I wrote about it on my uh, blog last week, you know, I was having a stressful week. And so I got brownies, I made homemade buttercream icing. I ate every single one of them, you know, over a period of days. And it was absolutely delicious. No shame. Mm -hmm. And because I could recognize you're doing this from a place of anxiety and, but let's bring awareness to that instead of shaming that. And that's, what's helped me heal this so much is just letting go of those trying to let go of this. Cause this is still very much a process for me trying to let go of those rules and the, and just noticing how many of them I have around food and working out and what a good person does. And, and let me, you know, I was thinking about this, this is a little off subject, but, but on subject, because I was thinking today, getting ready for this podcast about body awareness and et cetera, et cetera. And I've been diagnosed with, um, a form of inflammatory, inflammatory arthritis called oncolancing spondylitis. And I was diagnosed two or three years ago. We're still trying to get it under control. And it, when it flares, I get a, um, I get a bunch of adrenaline in my stomach. And so my stomach hurts. And so I, for a year said, I have this pain in my stomach. It hurts right here. And I could point to where it hurt. And I did all this testing, um, for stomach stuff. And then we thought maybe it was my heart. And I had, I mean, I had every test under the sun and it never, and until I went to my primary care and he was like, your inflammation markers are off the charts. What's that about? Do you have pain? And I'm like, no, I don't have any pain. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't have any pain because in my mind, I was fat and out of shape. Mm. And that's why I had these pains it was, I didn't have the right to complain about it because I deserved it because I was fat and out of shape. And that realization of I've wasted a year of studies and, and testing instead of owning, no, my back, it hurts and my hands hurt. And I couldn't say that because it, that meant 
that I had to own, you know, that I was just in a body that hurt and it wasn't my fault. And that was a block to me to really move forward. Mm. So, so here I say early on in this podcast, oh, I was in my forties. Well, that was 44, you know, so very much, this has been a process, but that realization of, oh my gosh, you have denied pain for years because you demonized your, I demonized myself by saying I was fat and out of shape instead of owning, no, this is pain and this isn't okay. Mm. Whew. That's really fascinating. And it's also really interesting because I know your work pretty well, Nancy. And I, I know that you talk a lot about perfectionism, um, as well. I mean, you're an expert in high functioning anxiety, which we'll talk about in just a moment, but just this story in relation to some of the perfectionistic tendencies, that's just, that's really interesting and so powerful hearing you say that as a professional who (laughs) helps other people in this space. And the reason why I love this is because it, it highlights your humanness. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm a big believer, and I, I know you are too from getting to know you in, <laughs> <laughs> in the first five minutes before we hit record, but just your willingness to, and your conviction to be transparent and honest with your own healing journey and, and this idea of just never being fixed and never wanting to come across as fully healed. So I appreciate the story because it really highlights that. And I also am interested in your process in getting to this place where you were able to give yourself full permission to share transparently. How were you able to cultivate that level of self-trust and, and safety for yourself to share more vulnerably and more powerfully. Um, I think this is where a lot of people struggle in like the online profession, this online helping profession, regardless of what your actual title is, but when to actually share, you know, is it when you're going through it and you have, you're in kind of like the muck, but you might be able to share more like more in depth and more honestly and, and more vulnerably? Is it afterwards? Like, how did you get to that point where you really found your rhythm with being able to share your own struggles in a powerful way? Yeah, I think, um, cause there's, it seems to be in the online world, um, there is the, I, uh, the, the, it goes to two extremes. One extreme is I'm, I'm only, I'm only, I'm sharing everything. You know, like I think about Brene Brown saying, don't be so vulnerable that you're sharing your live bikini wax. Like we don't need to see that much vulnerability. And I think there are people in the online space and coaches out there that do share that much vulnerability. They are just raw and it is unhealed. It is, it is untethered. It's just out there for the world to see. And, and then there's the other side because I can remember someone, I used to teach Brene Brown's um, Daring Way. And somebody said to me, I want to be authentic all the time. Like I want to live in the world hundred percent authentic, authentically. And I was like, yeah, well, you need to have some discernment on who deserves to hear your story and what it is about your story. They deserve to hear Like you can't just be hundred percent authentic everywhere you go. 
And so the one extreme is that. And then the other extreme is, you know, no one wants to hear about you. They just want to hear about themselves. And so, you know, talk to them how they can be fixed and they can be transformed and you can help them. And, and I bought into that camp for many, 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 many years. And then I realized in my own world, in my own life, like people I resonated with were kind of like, this shit's hard people. Like there is no easy answers. And we are all trying to figure this out. And we've been trying to figure this out as, as long as there's been humans on the planet, we've been trying to figure this out. So the fact that you think you've solved it is crazy. And, and I was finding myself feeling so alone because I'm like, I've been doing this work for 20 years and I still don't have it figured out. What's up with this? Like, what's wrong with me? And that was where I went for a, you know, a while. Cause I'm all about <laughs> inner critic and shaming myself is kind of my MO. And so I decided I, I'm done with this. I I'm done with pretending that I have everything together and I'm going to share where I'm struggling and how I'm using. I know, I think it was when I wrote the happier approach which is the book I wrote. And when I figured out this is the stuff that works, Mm -hmm. I know the things that work to help anxiety. And I know those are next to impossible to do all the time. So therefore it is next to impossible to heal yourself from it because you have to be willing to engage in this work all the time. And as human beings, we don't want to do that. So it was kind of that freedom to be like, I know what works and I, and I know how to fix it, but I know also know that that's not something I'm going to be willing to do all the time. So let me share what I'm going through. What are the stories? What are the symptoms? What is the stuff I'm struggling with in a real honest way so that at, at the bare minimum, my clients and the people that read my stuff can feel less alone. And they can feel like, oh, I'm not the only one in the world that doesn't have this figured out. This woman's been studying this for years and she still doesn't have it figured out either. And that became doable for me. Like that was like, this is the type of business I want to run. This is the person I want to be in the world is someone who's saying, here's the stuff I know that works. And here's how hard it is to practice that on a minute by minute basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I, I just really appreciate you saying this as well too, because you're still on the journey. And the cool thing is there's always going to be a new, a new opportunity to grow and to learn and how awesome that you get to pivot as a professional and a human being and, and giving yourself that full permission to just accept that you're not, you're never fixed, quote unquote, like there's nothing to fix essentially. It's just right. Yes. How you build in tools to support the symptoms and lessen the symptoms and, and reduce, which I actually want to talk to you about in, in just a moment. Um, but I do want to say one thing real quick about this idea that we're talking about, that it isn't, you know, I sent out a newsletter this week that was pretty raw and was talking about, how last week I had a whole, had a lot of anxiety and I was really spinning out and and I struggled a lot last week. And then, you know, kind of what I knew to do to help that. And I sent that newsletter out and I bet I, and I send my newsletters out on Sunday. I spent most of Sunday being like, oh my God, everyone's going to think I'm a freak. They're going to think I'm broken. They're going to, you know, no one's going to ever pay me to do anything ever again. (laughs) Like, you know, really went down the rabbit hole. And then I got a bunch of emails from people being like, oh my gosh, thank you. 
I didn't realize this. I didn't know this. And it makes me feel less alone. And, and I was like, that's what I want to be doing this for. So I, I say that because I also don't want it to come across like, yeah, so now I'm totally authentic and genuine and it's so easy and I'm transformed in that way. (laughs) Well, I appreciate you saying that. I I appreciate you adding that in because I also, I also think that just, um, highlights your humanness once again and vulnerability hangovers are real. Um, I, I, you know, I, I tell almost every single person when we wrap up this show, like, Hey, make sure you have some really nice self-care lined up afterwards. It's really important. And it's so, it makes sense too, because it's a primal reaction that we're having. We all want to stay safe. We all want to feel included. We don't want to be cast aside or unloved or unaccepted or, um, whatever, whatever boundary that is bumping up against primally speaking. So I think it's great that you're sharing this and that you're talking about this as, as a really successful therapist and somebody who's committed to helping others in this area. The fact that, yeah, you still, you still have days where you struggle, you use your tools, you share about it, you freak out. It's like the highs and the lows and just being in the emotions versus resisting the emotions. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Let's talk about high functioning anxiety. I've got a lot of questions. Okay. (laughs) And you're the expert. So, Ah. (laughs) um, so for everybody who's listening, I, (laughs) I was telling Nancy before we hit record that I had, and I can't remember if it's your episode or somebody else's episode of another podcast talking specifically about high functioning anxiety. And I listened to this a while ago and actually sent the episode to my therapist because I'm not done healing. I'm not, I'm not fixed. I'm not perfect. And everybody here knows that I'm really transparent about that, but I sent that episode to my therapist and I said, this is me. Like, this is, this is literally, um, like a full circle moment of so many things that I've been trying to name. Um, and I just, it it was, God, you know, that feeling where you have like that light bulb moment of trying to just compartmentalize something. There's a lot of problems with that, but there's a lot of support when we can just name something and a lot of power. So that was my moment. So can you share what high functioning anxiety is for everybody who's listening? And we'll just start there. Yeah. So, um, so high functioning anxiety, it's not a, you know, it's not like a, a DSM diagnosis. It's not something it's like nothing official quote unquote, but it is a, I for years had anxiety and I, you know, still go to my therapist regularly as well. And we would talk about anxiety and she, you know, she would say like, you have anxiety. And I would be like, I don't see it. Like, like I'm you know, doing all this stuff and I'm, um, you know, have my own business and successful. And, and I, and in my mind, anxiety is like, I don't want to go do something. I'm scared. I'm nervous. I'm worrying all the time. And that was just not my MO. Um, and so I always, so I describe high functioning. So anxiety usually is generalized anxiety is I, I worry, I have fears, I'm concerned about stuff, I'm, I'm overthinking things. And it, and it brings me into, um, I, I want to slow down, I don't want to do as much if I have a lower functioning 
anxiety. That doesn't mean I'm not like, you know, we as, as a culture have named functioning and given it a positive or a negative, like high functioning is better than low functioning, but it's not better or worse. It's just the way your anxiety presents in the world. Mm-hmm. And so lower functioning is I'm, I might be, might be, have more panic attacks. I might get more, um, hesit- I'll say no to things. I'll hide out in my room. I'll, I'll want to pull my covers under the over my head and just freak out and high functioning anxiety is I feel anxious. I feel, um, I'll overthink or I'll worry. I'll, I'll get obsessed about something and that propels me forward. So I want to go harder and faster because of my anxiety. It doesn't pull me back. I don't want to say no. I want to say, yeah, bring it. Let's do this. Come on. And I want to push harder, 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 harder. And so high functioning anxiety can show up. The thing that brought me to the fascination with high functioning anxiety and the more I get into it, like the more layers there are, which is with everything is that a lot of my clients would come to me because they wanted to deal with perfectionism or they wanted to deal with people pleasing or, and then we would, or they, and they would have taken programs and worked on those, those traits with other coaches. And, and then they're left, you remove perfectionism and people pleasing. And then you're left with this anxiety because the perfectionism and the people pleasing and the functioning and the go, go, go. And the keep pulling forward is is the coping skill you have learned to deal with the high functioning anxiety. So you do these coping skills that we as a culture, you know, which aren't healthy, people pleasing, perfectionism, over pushing, over performing. And then we remove those and then we're left with anxiety and we don't know what to do with that. So we pile on we just go back into perfectionism and people pleasing instead of recognizing, Oh, what's underneath here. That's the problem. It's the anxiety that we need to be treating, not these coping skills that we're using to deal with the anxiety. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) This is crazy. Okay. So let's just, can you give an example just and illuminate uh, possibly like a story or a client example of something like this. So let's say that you do remove the perfectionism and the people pleasing, and you are just left with the anxiety. Well, if you've removed the, the, the two aspects that we just talked about, what would that look like for somebody? Does like, what would be an example of just living in the, the high functioning anxiety without the people pleasing and perfectionism? So then it just becomes like this analysis paralysis or the overthinking or the spinning or the jumping from thing to thing to thing, the unable to focus, um, the typical uh, and things you think of when it comes to anxiety would be there. So it is so like last week, for example, I like I said, I had a tough week last week. I am copying over. I'm redoing my website now, copying over blog posts that I've had. I've, I have over, (laughs) which is a good thing, but it's a bad thing in this state. I have over 900 blog posts. Oh, wow. Um, We've edited out 500 of them, but that still leaves me with 400 blog posts that I'm copying over. And I, and I've been writing them for years. And so a lot of them have, I did not grammar check. And so I'm running them through grammar check and it's like all this stuff. And each blog post takes me about half an hour to do And so initially I was like, I'm going to do this in a weekend. It's going to be super easy. No big deal. I'm just going to whip this out. And 
and I'm, and I was really insistent, like, I'm not going to be a perfectionist about this. I'm, you know, like, that's not going to be my MO. I'm going to really like be open to admitting mistakes and see where I have the grammar errors and all that stuff. And so in this instance, I took away that perfectionism. I took, I, you know, I really was trying to be focused on just being authentic and how these blog posts appeared and, and making sure that it was the best product possible, but not super beating myself up for them not being perfect. And, um, and it's the wheels kind of fell off because I didn't get them, you know, it takes me one every 30 minutes. So it's not going to, I'm not going to whip this out in, <laughs> in the weekend that I had planned. And so last week I was spinning all week long, just hammering myself for, you should be doing these blog posts. What's your problem? Why aren't you doing them? And then I'd go in to do them and it would be, um, I would get stuck in the perfectionism again. So that I'd pull that back and I'd be like, I'm not going to, this isn't about perfection. This is just about doing this task. Let's just sit here and do this task. Well, then I couldn't. So I'd jump up and I'd go and I'd make brownies and I'd make homemade icing and I'd come back and I'd eat the, you know, would eat three of them. And then I'd go and sit back down and I try to do it and I get stuck on something else. And so I was jumping from thing to thing to thing. I was spinning out and beating myself up without even, and I think this is the biggest for me, this is the biggest piece of high functioning anxiety. And I see it a lot in my clients, the unawareness of how much your brain hammers the crap out of you, mm. and how much it is constantly spinning and how, what you could be and how you could be doing it differently and what could be happening. And if a good person did this and a good person would be doing that and someone better would be doing it this way and just jumping all over the place. And so you don't recognize that you are being inundated with shame and in order to overcompensate for that shame, you just push harder, harder, harder. And that's where the perfectionism comes in. So when we take away the perfect, the, the, the short answer of that very long answer. <laughs> no, I love it. I have, a whole, I have a whole story that's playing out in my mind. I'm just like watching the movie as you're talking. <laughs> the short answer is when you pull back that perfectionism, you're left with the shame. Mm -hmm. And so I think underneath high functioning anxiety is shame. That is the biggest driver of high functioning anxiety is this feeling of worthlessness. And if I perform better, if I do it better, if I whatever, then I'll be okay. And so we engage in all these behaviors, trying to ease that, um, that tension that's in our bodies that, that I think is anxiety. Mm. Oh, wow. That is so, that is so interesting. I, I also, I always have questions around people who don't have symptoms of high functioning anxiety or perfectionism or people pleasing. Um, and I have a couple of people in my life who I, I think about, but in your expertise, clients that you've treated or just people in, in your life in general, what would be an example of somebody who does not have these symptoms? Like what does their life look like? So I can remember years ago when I wrote, after I wrote my book and I did, I went around to, I, we used it as an excuse to travel and a different friends and family would host book clubs in their houses. And we traveled, took the summer and kind of traveled to various locations and it was there that I realized, I assumed everyone, because everyone I work with and, and most of the people in my life have this, I call the voice of the, the inner critic, I call that voice a monger, 
because mongers spread propaganda and that's what that voice is doing. And I have a monger who is like a freaking demon. Like she just (laughs) drives me to no end. And I believed that everyone, I believe everyone has a monger. And at that point, I believed everyone had a monger who was pretty much a demon who just was relentless. And in this doing these book clubs, I realized, oh, no, everyone does have a monger. Like, I still believe that. But there are people that just have this voice that just lovingly and lovingly might not be right, but like just nudges them. You know, you, maybe you should do this differently. Or if you were a better mom, you would do this or, or stuff like that. And it's not this relentless um drive of you are a loser and everyone can see it. And it's just like you get stuck in this. It's a trance almost is what it feels like when I'm in the monger world. When I, when I go down the rabbit hole of the monger, as I say, it's like this trance I get and I can't unhook it. It's really hard to unhook it. And so there are people, I know them. I've, I interacted them with the book club, with my book clubs. I've interacted with them in, in the world who just have this voice that isn't criticizing them all the time. It's just when they legitimately do something wrong, she's there to tell them they did something wrong, but not with a layer of shame and belittling and you're a loser. And if you, you were better, you wouldn't, this wouldn't happen to you. And so it is endlessly fascinating to me, as like you said, that there are people out there that, that don't experience this. Yeah. It's fascinating to me as well, too. I I'm right there with you. I think that just from the clients that I support and just like the, the nature of, of my work and just the, (laughs) the people in my life, I, I think, a lot of, a lot of people in my life tend to fall into the high functioning anxiety category, um, which is not a bad thing. I think that this is one of the things that I appreciate about just studying this and getting to know this from you is so many people struggle with this and that's, there's no shame in naming that either. I think that there's so much healing when we are able to name things and move, move forward from there. I'm curious, I'm curious though, what, what type of environment fuels high functioning anxiety? Like where does this stem from? Is this genetic? Is this environmental? Is this something that a person learns just socially or is it, um, is it something that happens later on in life, um, based on different traumatic events? Like where does this actually come from? Well, I think, I mean, I mean, obviously I don't, I have some theories as to where this comes from. Um, and I did want to, before I get into that though, I want to say, I want to say something about, um, I think the high functioning anxiety, is a, I think as a culture, as a Western culture, we tend to um, overvalue working hard and pushing and all that. You know, it is, it's baked into our culture. And so I think there is some of that type A personality overworking world that, that we have. And the difference in my mind between that and high functioning anxiety is the driver of that. So it isn't coming from an external, um, you know, the, the, the one that's the cultural norm is coming from an external world. Like I've bought a message that is telling me I'm only good if I perform a certain way, but let go of that message and I'm okay. You know, if I can let go of that message and do some work to let go of that message and I'm okay with high functioning anxiety, there's something baked in that's a little more intense, way more intense than just the cultural messaging. 
So it's a driver underneath that is saying you're not okay. And I think that driver I have found in most of my clients, um, that some of it's genetic, you know, we have a, you know, we might have a propensity for, you know, anxiety in our genetics. And I think that does make up a bulk of it. And, 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 but a large part of it, I think is that we did not learn as growing up, we did not learn how to deal with our feelings. We did not learn how to be okay with what's happening and where we are. And so one of the stories I share that illustrates this is um, growing up and you, you, you're, you're a kid, you walk into your living room and you see a snake. And in a healthy functioning family, you go to your mom and you're like, oh my God, there's a snake in the living room. And your mom comes into the living room and is like, oh my God, you're right. There's a snake. Let's get the snake out. Let's do the things. We'll, you know, thank you for telling me all that good stuff. In a, in a high functioning anxiety world where you're like brewing, it's going to make that an unhealthy family where that high functioning anxiety might get made is they come in to the room. Your mom comes into the room and says, there's no snake here. What are you talking about? I don't see a snake. Or she doesn't even come into the room at all. So she doesn't acknowledge your perceptions. She doesn't acknowledge your intuition. She doesn't acknowledge your feelings. She doesn't acknowledge what's happening. She's busy. She's doing other things, whatever, a thousand different reasons, not blaming the mom, but just saying you go back into the room and you start playing in the room with the snake Mm -hmm. next to the snake. Like you don't, you're like, I must be wrong. There isn't anything here. I'm it's okay. And so you learn to ignore yourself. You learn to ignore what's happening in your body. You learn to ignore your, which is why like to the very beginning of this interview, I can't say, Oh, what's my, you know, when did I first learn about my body? Because I was so busy worrying about what other people thought and ignoring myself that never registered with me. Mm-hmm. And so that idea of, and that's when it, you know, I write about in the book, the steps I think to help this. And one of them is acknowledging your feelings. That isn't anything mind blowing. That isn't anything unique to me to figure that out. But what was unique to me was I said that for years, I would say I'm reading my old blog posts. I can tell you, I said stuff about feelings in there, but in my real life, I was not acknowledging any feelings because the only feeling that I should acknowledge is happy. And other than that, the other feelings weren't okay. Every now and then I could be sad or I could be angry, but for the most part, I just needed to be happy. And if I wasn't happy, I needed to do whatever it took to get me to be happy. And so when I started acknowledging my feelings for real and really getting in there, I was like, oh, there's all this stuff happening on a daily basis that I'm ignoring because I'm performing or I should be doing something or I have to perform to the outside world. I can't take credence in what's happening inside of me. Mm-hmm. That's not okay. Mm-hmm. So I think learning that belief as a child of what you're experiencing in the world isn't okay. Starts the idea that, oh, it's only I can, I'm going to be super attuned to the outside world. I'm going to be super aware of what's happening out there. And I'm going to run as fast as I can from what's happening inside. And one of the ways that I can do that, and one of the ways I get guaranteed praise is when I perform at a high level. Yeah, and so it conditions us to 
to go there just out of habit and and it keeps us safe it sounds like too Absolutely. And that's the biggest thing. Thank you for saying that. I think, you know, because then there's like, oh, I did this wrong, or my parents did this wrong, or I shouldn't, da, 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 you know, we'll head down that road. No, it it is the idea that that way of being in the world worked. Mm-hmm. It was safe. It kept you protected. And then eventually it gets to the point where it's not working anymore. Like these coping mechanisms aren't cutting it and they're not they're not how I want to be in the world anymore. And so now what do I do? Oh, I got to deal with these coping mechanisms and I got to figure out how to start being loyal to myself. And that is where, you know, that's my tagline is um, being as loyal to yourself as you are to other people. Because mm-hmm. I think that is at the crux of healing just about everything that's out there. <laughs> it's, you know, that's the crux to to everything, I think, but it is the the crux, I think, to also healing high functioning anxiety is when I can be loyal to myself. Cause so many of my clients then want to be, well, what would Nancy do? What would Nancy do? Well, that's not the point here. It's what would you do? Mm -hmm. Yes. Self-loyalty. I love this concept so much. So how do you know when you get there? How do you, and of course, this isn't about perfection and full healing and transformation. It's, it's a journey as we've both expressed, but how does, what would be an indication of somebody who's really starting to cultivate that level of self-loyalty that is creating a a deeper change in their life? Well, for You know, I was listening to someone today who was talking about perfectionism and she said her example was you go into a meeting, you've been, you know, you've been given a a sales goal in a meeting and you don't hit it and how to get out of the perfectionist trap, you know, and we've all heard this before as you pull back and you think like, oh, what else could have been the problem? It could have been the branding. It could have been, you know, it wasn't all my fault that I didn't hit the sales goals. There were a lot of other things that were at play here. So it's not just about me and my perfectionism. It's about all these other things. But I think a piece of that that's missing is where I think self-loyalty comes in is, no, I did mess up here. I didn't do as good of a job as I could have. And so that doesn't mean I'm going to beat myself up and hammer myself. That just means, oh, this is what I didn't, I didn't do well here. So how can I, how can I make sure that next time I do do better? So it's a combination of pulling back to see, oh, there are a lot of other things that were at play that it wasn't just me, but it's also being able to see I can make a mistake and I'm not going to fall apart. Oh, that's so good. I love that. Because I have my own back. I'm loyal to myself. I can say, I can stand there and be like, ah, yeah, you did mess up. Okay. What are we going to do now? Yeah. And giving yourself the permission to mess up. Yes. Yes. Ooh, this is so great. Um, so a quick question before we move forward, because it, it keeps popping up in my mind. Can you can you have high functioning anxiety without perfectionism and people pleasing? And can you have perfectionism without high functioning anxiety? Like, do they all go together or are there, are there different, what would you call them? Like levels or degrees of, of somebody with high functioning anxiety? Yeah, I think, I think you can have 
you could definitely have perfectionism and not have high functioning anxiety. And you could have people pleasing and not have high functioning anxiety. But I think if you have, but it's, I haven't met anyone who has high functioning anxiety that doesn't, you know, they tend, we tend to have a preference of perfectionism or people pleasing, or, you know, one of those coping skills will pop up as a primary one that we go to. Mm, great. But I'm not saying that everyone that has perfectionism is guaranteed to have high functioning anxiety. I don't think that's true because it is again, back to that anxiety is the thing that's driving it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, that makes sense. And, and also, love that you highlighted again, the coping skill, the perfectionism, the people pleasing, it's a coping skill, something that's keeping us safe and, and some, something that we can also build a new skill around. So let's, let's talk about that for somebody who is really wanting to heal their high functioning anxiety and shift some of these coping skills to more, uh, self-loyal aligned skills. What does that look like? And, do you have any examples of how somebody who gets started with that process? So the, the, it's so funny. I, cause I have an acronym that I talk about in the book that, um, that I have a love hate relationship with because I hate having an acronym because it, and I love having an acronym at the same time, <laughs> but I hate having an acronym because it makes it like, Oh, just do these three things and bam, oh, bimbo, you are healed. Um, And it also, and at the same time, it's like these three things, which are something that I spend, I'm going to spend my lifetime trying to master are the key. Mm. So the, so it makes it sound like it's so easy, but it's really not. So, and, and the first, so it's acknowledge the acronym is ask, acknowledge your feelings is the first one is the A and, um, And then the second one is slow down and get into your body. And both of those are things that I have been claiming for years. I've been preaching for years that you have to do. And both of those things are things that I totally suck at doing. (laughs) Um, And they're so hard. And so I think that idea of acknowledging your feelings. And so, and I still, to this day, will pull out a feeling sheet Mm. and I will look at it to, to say what my feelings are. Cause I have such a hard time naming what they are, mm-hmm. but studies have shown that labeling feelings, just labeling them is helps move them through your body and helps them keep going. So it's able, it's not saying, um, it's being able to say, ah, today I'm feeling insecure or today I'm feeling sad or, and, and the sheet that I actually, that I give my clients has a high and low, um, level at which they're feeling the feeling. So it can go from, I'm feeling outraged to I'm feeling irritated. Mm -hmm. And so being able to recognize, oh, not only do I have a variety of feelings and I encourage people to name like eight to 10 when they sit down, because we're so used to being like sad, angry, happy. And there's a whole big world of feelings out there. And when you can start labeling them and, and getting more specific, they do move through. And I think there's this misnomer. And I gave a presentation a couple of years ago and I said, you know, I went through the acronym and I said, you know, acknowledge your feelings. And I said something about feeling your feelings. And the guy in the front row just rolled his eyes and was like, oh, here we go. You know, like, great, (laughs) feel your feelings. Okay. And I said, just bear with me. It's not what it sounds like. (laughs) (laughs) Because I think there is so much out there about feel your feelings and, Mm -hmm. you know, hit a pillow and get it out and da da da. And I literally mean like, 
label them, just name them out loud, just go through your head and start labeling them. And when I started doing that, it helped me build a relationship with myself because then I was like, oh, I'm this whole multidimensional person. Mm -hmm. I'm not just happy or angry. I have all these parts of me. And so that helped me kind of build a relationship with myself. It helps me get really clear on what's happening with myself because we tend to just get stuck in these rabbit holes and we don't in these trances like I talked about before and we we aren't really clear on what's really happening and so being able to label those feelings allows that to happen and then the next step is slow down and get into your body and I, ha- I don't talk about this in the book, but I have since writing the book, I have figured out that it is a full body movement that slow down and get into your body piece. And I encourage people to stand up, stretch, wiggle, touch your toes, do something that is full body, not this sit in your chair and take five deep breaths or, um, you know, look out the window. I'm talking, get up and move your body because you need to remember that you have a body. We get mm-hmm. so stuck in our heads that every time I stand up and I move my body, I'm like, oh yeah, look at that. I have thighs and my back hurts a little bit. And I'm just completely you know, amazed that I have a whole body. And so, and the reason I do that second, I have people label their feelings first and then acknowledge their feelings first and then slow down and get into your body is because labeling your feelings is still kind of a mental exercise. When you're in the midst of high-functioning anxiety, the last thing you want to do is stand up and move, even if it's for 10 seconds, because Mm -hmm. you want to keep going. You got to keep performing. You got to get it done. You can't be moving. That's sucking time, and I don't have time. And so I can remember walking downstairs, and my husband, I'd be like, oh, I'm so stressed. And he'd be like, oh, stop. Let's just take a deep breath. And I wanted to smack him across the face. (laughs) Like, I'm going to take a deep breath. I got shit to do here, people. So the acknowledging your feelings kind of is a baby step into building that relationship with yourself. Then once I do that, I'm more comfortable with slowing down and getting into my body. And, and so those two pieces are key. Mm -hmm. Then the K kindly pull back to see the big picture is the last piece. So it spells ask, acknowledge what you're feeling, slow down and get into your body and K kindly pull back to see the big picture. And that allows, because the, When you are in the midst of high-functioning anxiety, which usually means your monger, that voice, that inner critic is really loud, we tend to go into this all-or-nothing thinking. We get really um, tunnel vision. And so the K, kindly pull back, is kind of like the idea of pulling the blinders back and being able to see, oh, look, there's all these options. You know, like for me, with this moving of the blogs over, I don't have, the world isn't going to end in five days. If I don't get this done, I have lots of time to do this. There's a variety of ways to get this project done that don't require me staying up all night posting blogs. And so, but until I was able to really do that, and I've had to do that multiple times, have I, you know, I tend to get stuck in the, no, no, we said we were going to have it done by May 1st. We said this, okay, well, we're not, let's figure out a different way. And so that's the power of that kindly pull back. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm just thinking about all of the self-imposed deadlines that we, (laughs) well, I'll speak for myself that I put on myself and I know that so many people do in general, but yeah, I love this acronym so much. And I actually, I'm a fan of acronyms and I know what you mean in terms of feeling like you're 
boxed into something and you're constantly working to perfect this. But I, I love yours because it's so simple and it really makes sense. And it, it's a really fluid process. And especially just knowing that feelings are stored in our body, like it makes, yes, it makes so much sense that you would first acknowledge how you're feeling and then experience that feeling somatically, just even like getting up, like you said, and then zooming out. Another reason why I love this acronym so much is because I think it goes, it it fits so well with the cast of characters that you've created in this book too. (laughs) And it doesn't demonize emotions in a way that our culture kind of perpetuates. I, I, I'd be curious about your opinion about this, but I'm a big fan of embracing the negative emotions. I think that we can really pigeonhole ourselves when we're only trying to pursue the positive emotions in our life. And I think that there's so much beauty in sitting in the suck sometimes and really just acknowledging, okay, this is what fear feels like. And there's nothing bad about that. This is what anger feels like. And there's nothing bad about that. This is what sadness feels like. And, and that's okay. Just like it would be okay to feel happy or elated or blissful or, um, you know, however you're feeling on the other end of the spectrum. Um, but the yeah, I'm of- over here nodding like okay. a freaking So totally just like, yes, yes, yes. Like we have been, our culture, that is so countercultural to be like, I'm having a sad day and I'm just feeling sad. And then, and one of the things I talk is, and it's not about why or how can you get out of that? Or it's just, that's it. I'm just having a sad day mm-hmm. or I'm feeling yes. sad right now. I don't have to figure out why I don't have to get to the root of it. I don't have to judge it. And I just can acknowledge, ah, for whatever reason. Yes. You're having a human experience, a human emotion yes. and right. just giving yourself the space and the permission to just be at peace with that and acknowledge that. Um, so powerful. Can you briefly go over the, the characters that you've created because you have three of them and I'll let you explain to our community who they are. But one of the reasons why I love this so much, Nancy, is for years I've been teaching black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking, and the inner critics in our mind from a two-dimensional lens and I invite my clients and I do this for myself as well too, but I invite my clients to name their inner critic Mm -hmm. and give them a personality and a name that feels appropriate for however they're showing up with their mind. And then also that other voice that they're stepping into that more empowered voice, that voice that they really are creating uh, cultivating confidence and just peace and however they want to emphasize that in their life. But you introduce a third component to this, which I think is really fascinating. And I'd love for you to, to share because this really adds color into that black and white thinking in a way that is really powerful. Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah, so I so the first character is the the monger that we've talked about that the inner critic and I believe, you know, the monger is there to there's she's there to keep us safe. So it isn't about um she's not an I don't call her an inner bitch. I don't call her the mean girl. I you know, she's there 
Um, and that's why I call her a monger because it is about, she's just spreading propaganda. And I always say the, you know, she's don't be sure her rules are don't stand out. Don't be too vulnerable and don't make a mistake. And if you break one of those rules, she will let you know. Um, because those rules are, are what's going to cause you to get criticized in the outside world. It's going to, might cause you, you know, pain. And so she's going to lock that down for you. Now you can't do anything in the world. If you break, you have to break one of those rules to be in the world, living your life. So, um, so, and then there is the, the, the counter to that is what I call the biggest fan. Um, and this is your wise voice, your inner wisdom, that voice of, the voice of self-loyalty who's like, we got this, you know, this will be okay. Oh, we made a mistake, but let's keep going. So she's that voice of kindness and wisdom. And she, because she's going to hold our feet to the fire, but she's going to be really kind about it. So she's going to say, Nancy, you got to get these blogs done. Like you got to do this. I, I know it sucks, but here we go. Let's figure out a way to do this in the, in the, you know, pulling back to see the big picture way. Let's figure out a way to do this in the most pleasant way possible. And it needs to get done. And so where I would get stuck when I was working on my own stuff, because my monger was super loud, is the idea everyone would say, have self-compassion, have, have self-compassion. And I didn't really understand what that meant. I mean, I know what it means, but I couldn't really get it because in my mind, if I was going to have self-compassion or even self-acceptance, that means that I could do whatever I wanted. I wasn't going to have any um, ramifications, you know, like I, I'm not going to grow any because I'm accepting myself no matter what. And I'm not going to grow as a human being. And so that's why my biggest fan character has that voice of she's going to hold your feet to the fire, but she's going to be kind about it. Because I think for a lot of people, we believe we need the monger or we won't get anything done. And so if I don't have that voice shaming me, I'm just going to be a bump on the couch doing nothing. So what I figured out then is this middle character and I call her the BFF and I call her the BFF because it's kind of like in high school where you have your BFF that'll do everything you ever, you know, she's up for anything. And, and I always laugh because my best friend is actually a living, breathing BFF. So she is always going to encourage me to get the extra slice of cake, to have the extra drink to, you know, she always in for trouble. And I am perfect in every possible way. There's nothing wrong with me ever. Like she just sees me as this glowing light of amazingness, <laughs> but she's not going to hold my feet to the fire. You know, she's not going to say, oh, you know, if someone hurts me, it's always their fault. She's never going to be like, oh, Nancy, did you know, what did you contribute to this? Oh no, your husband's an asshole. Here's why I have your back, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that middle voice, the voice of the BFF can get us in trouble too, because I would notice I would, you know, have a day where I'm supposed to be writing or posting blogs. And, you know, I said, I went downstairs and I made brownies and I made homemade icing. That's the BFF, mm. her jumping in there to say, ah, oh, let's screw this blog crap. Let's go down and make some brownies. That would taste really good. Come on, let's go do that. You know? So she's, I would, and years ago, I would find myself, I'm supposed to be writing. And then I would be upstairs, like reserving the day for writing. And then before I knew it, I was downstairs on the couch, eating Reese cups, watching Real Housewives. Like, where did that, how did I get from there to here? Well, I got from there to here because my monger was so loud upstairs telling me what a loser I was and how I couldn't write anything that my BFF stepped in to protect me. And she came in to say, let's go downstairs. 
let's take an early lunch. Let's go watch some Real Housewives. And so she's sabotaging me in a completely different way, but it looks like it's self-compassion. It looks like it's kindness, but it's not, it's not self-loyalty. It is the idea of, um, it's just the opposite. It's kind of releasing the pressure valve. And so back to food and eating and body image for me, figuring out this BFF thing was super healing because now I know when I am looking for a reward and I'm thinking, and my automatic response is if I want a reward, it's food or alcohol is to recognize you're looking for a reward where what's else is going on here. Mm. And where can we find a reward that isn't food or alcohol based? Cause those are just my easy go-tos. And sometimes it's like, oh, I need to stop hammering myself so hard. Mm. And that's the reward I need. It's not that I need to go do something. It's just that my monger has been so loud that I'm looking to, to my BFF is stepping in. And then I've also found that BFF steps in, in anytime we're judging other people or we're gossiping or engaging those behaviors that make us feel yucky. That's usually the BFF because she's protecting us from the monger who's hammering us that we didn't do it right. Or we didn't look okay. And so let me judge someone else for how they're doing it. And then I'll feel better. So fascinating. How does high functioning anxiety fit into, to all of this? So I wrote the book and I did the monger, all that stuff, um, before I figured out this high functioning anxiety. And, uh, but it, because it was after doing the book club things that I realized, oh, wait a minute, there's these people that have this special kind of monger who's the demon. And then I realized, and those people tend to have high functioning anxiety. Like it just kind of all kind of like a divine inspiration all kind of clicked. And so it is that I think for people that have high functioning anxiety, they are the ones when I wrote the happier approach book, I wanted it to get to the people who believed they needed the monger or they weren't going to get anything done and had this, um, you know, a good friend of mine came up to me after I did a presentation and this was my real come to Jesus moment. This is before I wrote the book. She came up to me and she said, I loved your presentation on the inner critic. That was awesome. I'm not doing anything you suggested to get rid of it because I need that voice. Mm. And I was like, yeah, you're right. I need that voice too. And that was in, I walked home and I remember thinking you are such a fraud because you're telling people they need to get rid of this voice, yet you have this secret love affair with her. You really believe you need her or you won't get anything done or you won't be a success. And so that's started the inspiration for the book, but that is also a trait of people with high functioning anxiety. Interesting. (sighs) That they have that belief of, I have to keep over-functioning. I have to keep pushing because I'm not, you know, I need to succeed in order to stop these awful feelings of anxiety. Yeah. And from what we were saying before too, from this place of safety, that this is the only way that I know how to protect myself and this ingrained fear of, if I don't, if I stop performing, then I will fill in the blank, you know, be unsuccessful yes. in some way that is detrimental to your, your primal needs that, that you've placed in your life. So that is, that is so fascinating. And I have used this so many times in my own life since reading the book. And I've shared this with clients. Um, but I just really appreciate 
your introduction to the biggest fan to this, this voice, this new voice, and really being able like in those moments where I can only speak for myself, but when I have tunnel vision around something and whether that's just a really high stress day or a really emotional day, um, good or bad, right? Like negative or positive emotions. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it is hard to, to just kind of make sense of what's going on. And so your exercise, your acronym ask and also <laughs> being able to really stop and and think okay whose voice is in my mind right now like which character is the most present and how do I cultivate more of the biggest fan right now and I also just in my in my interesting little mind I always color things as well too and so I always think of like a paint canvas and when I'm in that black or white thinking I always think okay what colors do we want to pull from the canvas in this situation and like you know, color in the lines as well, too. Oh, I love that. Yeah, maybe we can illustrate some things together one day. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That is so fascinating. I think that is incredible. Oh, my God. Well, I, I, I know we're coming up on time, and I think this is actually a really excellent place to land because everything that you're sharing, I... I just know that so many people are going to listen to this and think, holy shit, I've been looking for something like this and waiting for something like this. And I know that so many of our listeners are going to feel heard and seen for the first time in a really powerful way. And so let's just leave it here and um, let it sit with everybody. But for you, is there anything that you want to just share and wrapping up our conversation. And of course, where can everybody connect with you? Yeah. Um, so I am <laughs> I'm in the process of moving my website, but as you know, from how much I've shared about that here, um, but you can find me at uh, live-happier.com. Even if I've moved websites, you can, you'll still get there by going to live-happier.com. And, and I'm actually in the process, an, another project I'm working on is creating a course Ooh. for people with high functioning anxiety. So I'm hoping to have that come out later this summer. Um, and then in addition to that, I work with clients individually and I work with them through an app called Voxer instead of the traditional, you know, session type stuff. I have found that working with people with high functioning anxiety tend to do well with this Voxer thing because it allows them to, it's a walkie talkie app so they can leave me a voice message and then I respond during my office hours, which is every day, Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. And so if you're having a bad day, you can reach out and contact me. And because what I was finding when I was working with clients via in my office or via video session is that they'd come in and be like, everything's great. I'm doing great because they didn't want to go there if it wasn't doing great. And if it and so they didn't because they're so folk we're so focused on functioning well you know that if we're functioning well we don't want to talk about the stuff where we're not functioning well mm -hmm. and and then also or they would come in and um if we did work on something it wouldn't continue into the next week into the next session so i have i love working with clients on boxer it is a fantastic my clients love it it's a fantastic way to work with people so that's how i'm doing my individual sessions now you i'm also getting ready to launch a new podcast um, which I'm a new season of my podcast. I have um, a podcast called the happier approach and you can listen to my past episodes. And then starting on May 7th, I will have a new season starting. 
Amazing. We'll connect everything in the show notes for everybody listening. Please connect with Nancy. She is fabulous. Grab her book, The Happier Approach. I cannot recommend it more highly. It's just a, um, something you need to have on your bookshelf and read multiple times. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you so much. Thank you for your truth and just your courage and vulnerability and all of your expertise that you brought to our conversation today as well, too. Thank you for having me. This was great. Super energizing. Thank you. That's our show. Thank you to our producer, Stephanie Olea, our show manager, Shayla Anderson, and our incredible guest. If you want to stay connected and learn more about our guest today, click the show notes of this episode. And if this conversation resonated with you, please share it with a friend or leave a review so that we can continue to destigmatize these important conversations around our relationship with food and body and spread inspiration to more women. One last thing, please don't forget to hit subscribe so that you can save time and stay on top of each new episode every week. I'm sending you so much love, confidence, and strength. Talk to you soon. Thank you.